0: Welcome to the KnoxCast, where we talk to the community about all things Knox. My name is Mitch Prentice, and today we had the privilege of talking with Terry Smith from the class of 1963. From working with NASA on the Apollo missions to helping develop Auto-Tune, yes, that Auto-Tune, Terry chatted with us during a stop on campus for his 60th class reunion at Homecoming and shared tales of his absolutely incredible career in time as a Knox student.
1: Terry Smith, how are you doing? I am doing fine. I'm back at Knox for my
0: 60th reunion and loving every minute of it. Yeah, I imagine it's beautiful out to some degree. It's a little cloudy, but the fall foliage is about as good as it gets around here. Are you enjoying that?
1: Yes, I am.
0: Well, you are, like you just said, here for your 60th reunion, which is absolutely incredible, class of 63. Um, what when you've been walking around campus and just moving around, has there been any like? And I know you've been here since your graduation, obviously, but um, has there been any like major change to the campus in those sixty years that still surprises you the most?
1: Well, the physical plant has changed so much that it's it's all still kind of a surprise. I mean, the smack is uh, brand new to us or to me. Right and uh, Dave, what is now Davis Hall Mm -hmm.
0: was the Science Hall when I was here. Old Main is still Old Main. Yeah, it'll always be Old Main, right? It'll always be. What do you think of uh, What do you think of the new Art Center?
1: Uh, We toured it when we were here. It's 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 a great center. I was not much into the arts. Yeah. So uh, creating art was never my thing and uh, I'm glad we have it because we had some students here who were fantastic artists and uh, it's great to have a place for them to express themselves.
0: Now when you when you describe yourself generally do you describe yourself as a scientist? Is that like probably what you would call yourself? When I was at
1: Knox I would have called myself a math nerd. Okay. <laughs> I uh, I entered college at 16. I went to a a nerd high school, University of Illinois Lab School in Champaign Urbana.
0: Okay. That you said you did. You say you came here at sixteen when you were sixteen. Yeah. Really. So when you were on campus, you were kind of the the young guy around.
1: I was I was the young guy around. I I was not, you know, dating was kind of hard for me. The girls were older than I was. Yeah. And <laughs> way more. Uh, Sophisticated, I'll say.
0: Right. You probably, I mean, I can only imagine being 16 among like 18 to 22 year olds. You probably, was yeah. that difficult for you when you were here?
1: Yeah. One of the great things about Knox is everybody's accepting and uh, I always felt welcomed in and I learned a lot of good social skills here.
0: So tell me about when, I, I hate to use the, uh, the cliche, what are some of your favorite memories? Cause I know there's probably way too many. So I'll ask you about a specific one then. Um, what was, can you describe uh, flunk day for me? Was that, was that like a big roaring thing back in 63 or in that era? Oh, it, it, I didn't know
1: about flunk day the other day it occurred. <laughs> right, of course. And then, oh, it's wonderful. We went out, had buses to take us out to Lake Story. It was fun.
0: It was great to get a day off. When you were in your classrooms then, you know, I know that you, like you called yourself a math nerd, right? What was the, what was the classroom environment like back then? I mean, obviously, it was a lot different than now with computers and, and everything making it a little bit of a different sort yeah. of thing. But do you remember any of your classes specifically? There were two
1: in the math department. There were two seminars given, one by the head of department and one by a Dr. Lindstrom. One was seminar in group theory and one was a seminar in analysis. And they were invitation only. Oh wow. And under, lower class undergrads didn't get invited very much. But uh, my sophomore year I got invited to seminar in group theory and I, I thought I was hot stuff.
0: Oh, well you, I mean if you were a sophomore that means you're only what, 17 years old then. Yeah. So you're the 17 year old dude just coming into this invitation only class and you probably did think you were hot stuff I bet. Yeah. Was it was it intimidating when you were in there, or did you feel like you belonged because you had no, that invitation? I felt like I yeah. What was the invitation process like? Like, how did you know that you got in? Was it like something well, in the mail? Well, no. When,
1: when it came time to register for classes, the professor teaching the class would take you aside and said, "Do you want to sign up for group theory this year, mm. or you want to sign up for analysis this year?" And that was kind of a uh, big stroke to
0: the ego too. Oh I, I being singled you. out. Yeah, right. Everybody's like, Oh, he got an invitation. Wow. <laughs> who were some of your who some of the faculty that you interacted with, like any, any memories there?
1: Rothwell Stevens was the chair of the department. And the guy who thought the group theory class was Andrew Lindstrom. He left here to go to Southern Illinois University. Oh. I took one class one English class just so I mm-hmm. need to a liberal arts class. He read short stories and wrote analyses of them.
0: Was that difficult for you as somebody who primarily focused on math and science?
1: No, I was good at the analysis part. The first paper we wrote, Harold Grutzmacher taught the class. He passed out papers and I got mine back and I had an A minus on it. He said to the class he announced there were only four A's in this class. I expected better out of you people. <laughs> and I, he said, uh, I don't know, name, 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 name. You, you were the ones that got the A's. Mm-hmm. And that's only four. Who else got an A? I kind of waved my hand. I, I wasn't gonna jump up and claim credit.
0: Right.
1: He didn't see me. So after class, we're walking out He said, "Harry, I think you got an A. Why didn't you stick your hand up?
0: Yeah.
1: Because that's just not who
0: I am. Of course. Yeah, right, right. And uh, he said, oh, I understand. So even in your English classes, you were knocking out the high grades. I was a smart dude. Well, I would say you are a pretty smart dude because I'd like to... I'd like to uh, read off a few of your career achievements here that you've done okay. since Knox, and I think that this is one of the more interesting lists that I've seen in, in a while talking to alum. And I'm gonna I'm gonna go through these, and then I wanna I wanna talk about a couple of them and how. Obviously, just the details of them and then relating them back to your time here. So, here's some of the career highlights that you would give me Served as an IBM contract programmer for NASA. That's pretty incredible. Yeah. Um, hired as the first programming employee for Landmark Graphics, a company in exploration for oil by displaying seismic data onto computer screens. That's another thing. I would definitely love to hear about the change in technology over your time doing this, but we'll get to that um formed and I'm going to I'm going to guess I'm saying this right is it Antares? Yes. Antares because it says Andy plus Terry <laughs> with Andy Hittlebrand Hittlebrand yes very good and provide uh, that provided early development of the AutoTune pitch correction software. That was the one that I think I heard the most about from um, when talking about you was the AutoTune. That's yeah. pretty cool. And then two more here: developed and maintained a database used um, by a consortium of pediatric doctors for six major hospitals studying how to treat children with inflammatory bowel disease. So that's, and this is like all over the place already. We got NASA, we got AutoTune, we got hospitals. And then last one here, hired by Control Dynamics to develop computer systems to solve problems for a variety of industries. Um, one of those was developing cruise control software for tugboats to maximize fuel efficiency. What a scope of things you're doing here! I don't even know where to start. That's like that's like ten different episodes right there. My goodness! But I will start. Let's the we'll start at the top there. So NASA. So when did you when did you start there? I started there in '66. So that was right after graduation then. Well, let me years. give you. I,
1: I after graduation, I applied to the University of Iowa and got an assistantship to teach freshman math. And while I was at Iowa, they had a big computer center, and one of the things they were doing in grad school was teaching Fortran programming. So I signed up to take that and uh, learn to program Fortran. Then I transferred to the University of Illinois because I was going to get my master's degree in math. When I was at Illinois, my wife and I applied for the Peace Corps.
0: Okay. And we were accepted to go to Sierra Leone. So, and I, I failed to mention here thus far that your wife is also from Knox. Yes. And I don't know if we want to talk about that now or cap off with that, because that's just as much of an important story here as anything else. I'll let you keep going with your, uh, with your tale here, but we, we'll circle back to that.
1: Okay. Well, one of my math professors told me, Terry, you're on the cutting edge of the computer world right now if you go to Sierra Leone for two years, you're going to be out of it, and which was dead on. So he said, "There's a, IBM is recruiting on campus now. If you'd like to talk to them. I said, sure. Pat, my wife's father was employed by IBM, so I knew I thought it was a good company. Okay. So I
0: interviewed with them, and they offered me a job. So IBM was first then? Yeah. Okay, so, and that was... That was 66. Okay, gotcha. Oh, okay, because you were a contractor. Okay, so it was you were working for IBM, and then IBM was working had, for NASA. Yes. Okay, gotcha, so continue. And uh, back in those
1: days, computers were room-size right. computers. Massive things. Yeah, yeah. I remember when the TRS-80 came out, that was a, one of the first microcomputers available for sale to the general public the radio shack computer and i remember going home to my wife and tell her i wanted to buy a, a, a computer and she was startled yeah yeah because it I, wasn't
0: it wasn't computing in the same in the same way that we think about it today like if no. you would have bought that at the time and maybe you did i did you did buy it okay so when you bring that home what was the f- functionality of it like what would you need it at home for well it uh it had embedded a Visual
1: Basic a sem, uh, interpreter, and you could write games on it—Hangman mm. or things like that. Yeah, and uh, I did. I wrote games.
0: Very good.
1: And I wrote. A, I used it. It had a modem built in, mm. so I used it to log on to America
0: Online. If you remember that from oh, the absolutely. old days. Yep. And uh, what year range are we talking about right now? What What time frame would that have been? early 70s early 70s okay and how much room did it take up in your house
1: oh it sat on a desk about the size of this one in my study
0: yeah and it had, you probably got to watch the evolution of computing from a point of it kept dialing down right, right. It kept getting smaller more sophisticated right. Right. and to now now to the point where you know we're sitting here with multiple computers sitting on a desk that are millions of times more powerful than what you were working with in the 60s right, and 70s. Right. Has that been a pretty amazing evolution oh, for you? It has
1: been, and it's been fun to be part of it. I just enjoyed every minute of my career. You know, the speed of light is the uh, limiting factor. Right. Yeah. How fast can electrons move down a copper wire it determines how fast you can make the computer. You make it smaller, shorter distances between things, it goes faster.
0: So the the computing you were working with with IBM and NASA, it says here specifically that it was responsible for providing lunar landing module flight path information during the Apollo mission. So how what specifically were you doing for that? A man from
1: MIT had written the equations that ro- drove the onboard computer on the lunar landing module. And he sent me a bunch of documentation, and my job was to make that those equations work on an IBM mainframe. Because we were constantly tracking the spacecraft. You wonder where it was every minute, and what it was doing. One of the things it did was send back alarms if something was going wrong, and you always wanted to know what that alarm was about.
0: Yeah. If it was serious or frivolous. Was it IBM computers on the actual spacecraft? No. No. So on the Apollo missions then, so how does IBM factor into the actual spacecraft at all, since you said, well, since it says it was part of the landing module?
1: Well, yeah, I was modeling the behavior of the new landing module oh, okay. on the IBM rain And And in mission control at NASA, mm. they had uh, six IBM mainframes running, driving big wall-sized displays that let you know where the spacecraft was and is it in the right attitude? Meaning, was it oriented correctly in
0: space? Is there any fire? Yeah, that's, don't want that. You yeah, don't want don't that. Want that. Yeah. How, how directly did you get to uh, be like within the NASA facilities? Did you get to... Oh yeah, uh,
1: during Apollo 9, which was the first actual deployment of the lunar lander. Uh, I got to be in mission control. Wow,
0: that's pretty incredible, huh?
1: Yeah, that was that was. Exci- I felt like I was hot stuff. Yeah, <laughs> yeah.
0: yet again, your your uh, your career for all the things you're doing. I imagine there are a lot of moments where you're feeling like you're hot stuff. Because my goodness, talk about a cool part of. I mean, that's history. There, you know. Do you ever do you ever sit and like just think about the historical pieces of like the world that you've been a part of?
1: Well, it's it's nice to have been a part of all those things. I I feel
0: good about it. And you know, my
1: Knox education played a role in that.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, thinking back to you you know, you're here, sixteen years old, just figuring out what you were doing. Did you did you know when you were sixteen and coming onto campus for the first time, did you know that this was the route you wanted to go into? No. Had no idea what a computer even was, really. Really, so that was all picked up while you were here, then. Yes. Oh, inter- that—that's really interesting, and that really there is a testament to it, because I feel like a lot of students who come here do enter thinking one thing and leave learning another thing, right? And has, was I imagine that was a, probably pretty accurate to you then. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: actually, the, the high—I told you, I think the high school I went to. Was a, a real nerd school and all of my, most of my classmates were going to Ivy Leagues Mm -hmm. and uh, I wasn't even thinking about going to college. Never considered it, never knew it was possible. But one day my guidance counselor we had in high school came down and said, Terry, there's a counselor from Knox College coming to campus today. I'd like you to come down and interview with him. Sure. What did I know? Sure. You say, I want to be
0: there. I want to be there. I got a class to do that. Oh, wow. So that's fun. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, when you, so I, that's a good point though. I mean, what, what ultimately was the deciding factor here? Like what, when you think back on it, what was the, what was the selling point? Like what ultimately made you say, Knox is where I want to go?
1: Well, Knox was in Illinois and I wanted to stay in the state. Most of my high school buddies were going far away Mm. to either coast. I had a friend that went to Reed College. I had a friend that went to Harvard. And uh, I did not want to do that. I couldn't, I didn't see how I could afford to do that. I couldn't afford to fly home. Every vacation from those places. Wow. So Knox was right here. I was so glad to be accepted at Knox. Mm -hmm. And uh, I had something to talk about with my classmates then. They were going someplace. I was going someplace. Yeah.
0: Could they believe that? Well, at that time, do you remember what your class size was approximately? Probably 30. 300, 300 probably? Yeah. So they, you know, some of them are going to Harvard or, you know, all these places. And you're choosing to go to a little liberal arts school in the middle of Illinois. What what was that? Did you feel like I'll I'll use your term here, like hot stuff, talking to them about going to like, did you feel like it was like a prestigious place to go to?
1: I didn't know much about Knox. Yeah. Um, So I didn't have any any context for perceiving it to be prestigious or not.
0: Well, I'd love to, I'd love I, as much as all five of these points, you probably have their own long stories. There's. I would really love to talk about the auto-tune part because that is one that is so relevant today still. Okay. Um, and I know that it isn't just one person who made auto-tune, right? I'm sure it was yeah. a lot of software development across a, a spectrum. Yeah. But here specifically, it says you provided early development of the pitch correction software. So tell me about that. Okay. Where, where did that lie in your career? Well,
1: uh my my partner, Andy Hildebrand, was a real genius. He and I had, had been at Landmark Graphics together, and he wanted to work with me. So we wanted to do something in the digital music business, so he thought we ought to build our own computer platform. At that time, there was a, a very popular platform called uh, Pro Tools from
0: DigiDesign. And what and what year frame would this have been in? That would have been. Uh, we getting into the '90s at this point. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. In the '90s. Yeah.
1: And uh, and we decided to build our own box. Well, Andy designed it and laid it out and had a. A computer company fabricated and then we needed a an operating system for it. I wrote that. Wow from scratch.
0: Yeah, that's incredible. Wow. so with the, so the the what well, we know today as autotune. so like the bones like the origins of that can legitimately be routed back to you then partially well, well, it, you it was built on the box that
1: I helped develop. It was Andy's idea. We had a Japanese distributor who repped our software in Japan. Okay. And his wife was a singer. And one day at lunch, he asked Andy, could you you make something that would have my wife sing on pitch?
0: (laughs) What a pitch. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. yeah.
1: Kind of a damning with faint praise. Yeah,
0: sure, sure
1: and and he said yeah i think i could do that and he turned around
0: and did it wow that's incredible talk about something that has absolutely revolutionized an art form you know and i mean obviously the software has become so like so much more sophisticated these days to the point where you you know you can get apps that do it on your phone now you know um does it does it amaze you to think back to the earliest forms of these developments and see how how much they've advanced to you know 30 years later now
1: well it does a little bit but uh but at its core it it was happening while i was in working on it i mean yeah going by a blur yeah do
0: you know who coined the phrase autotune I believe it was Andy. You think oh was it? Okay. I, I was, was wondering. Pretty sure. That's that's pretty amazing. I am when you look back, I don't know if you'll have an answer for this, but I am it's one of the things I've I had to ask you. When you when you look at the the music landscape now and how much it's utilized, I mean that software is utilized all the time now. Um, do you think that autotune in general has had a like in terms of like art artistic value do you think it's had a net positive or, or net negative on the the music industry as a whole?
1: Well, I'll be I need to preface this by saying I'm not a musician. Of
0: course, of course.
1: Uh and I don't
0: sing. Yeah. except in the shower. Yeah. And I'm sure very well in the shower. Yeah. Yeah. With auto tune. Yeah, with auto tune, right? You got your own built-in shower auto tune. Yeah. I'm sure,
1: yeah. Uh I think it's been a net positive. Yeah. I don't know if it's been a net positive for creativity yeah. or just people with
0: marginal skills can now get their voice heard. Absolutely. And that has to feel pretty incredible to know that you had a part in that. Yeah. Because you're right. I mean, there are some people I'm sure who are close, right? Close to having that perfect voice they want. And yeah. now what you helped develop has given them an opportunity to have a career for that. So. Right. Does that does that? Do you ever think about the, how widely used it is, and and no, just maybe zone out a little bit? <laughs> no, I mean, I
1: actually, but I mean, since I'm not in the music industry, I really
0: had no idea how widely used it was. You're right. Were you surprised? Yeah. Yeah, that I mean, I would imagine. I mean, you hear the you just hearing the the phrase "Auto Tune," right? Everybody knows what it is. You know, how many people can say that they worked on something that like probably more than half of the world knows what it is just by saying the word, you know, it's pretty cool. Yeah, that is cool. Yeah. <laughs> Makes you feel like hot stuff. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Very good. Very good. That I, I can't believe I mean, I want to go through I want to touch on a couple more of these here. Um, but uh just looking at, so that was in the nineties then. So how, how much are you still working on things like this to this day or? Well, just in general, not on all. I'm I'm basically retired, Okay, but,
1: uh, I am doing a volunteer project. There are chapters all across the country of something called the assistance league. Okay. And there is a organization staffed in each city by volunteers. And they run a thrift shop, by mm-hmm. like Goodwill, to raise money, and then they use that money to clothe and buy backpacks and school supplies for inner city kids.
0: Okay, and that's what you've been putting most of your time into, then. Yeah, that's that's a great way to close out a career. There, my goodness! Like yeah. when you, I I was I was thinking like when you do all these amazing things throughout your career, like are you always thinking like. What's the next thing going to be? Like, always just rapidly like, well, I've done NASA, I've done Auto-Tune, you know, uh, just on to the next thing.
1: Yeah, there's always some... You you really like the excitement of doing something creative
0: that uh, impacts people. Yeah. Helps people. I mean, my every single thing on the list that we talked about at the beginning has (laughs) impacted somebody. Right. I mean, it's pretty incredible. And I mean, to be sitting, you know, now you're sitting here, you're at your 60th reunion. I mean, is you have so many stories to tell. Is that pretty fun to be able to come back to Knox and know that when you talk to people, you have all of these amazing things to to say, Hey, look at what this place did for me.
1: Yeah. It's a lot of fun. I do have one more story. I don't think you've ever heard. Uh, between my junior and senior year, my father died from a massive coronary. Okay. And I wrote Knox and told him I wouldn't be back because we couldn't afford it. Yeah, Our, our share of, I had scholarships and loans for most of the comprehensive fee, but my parents contributed too. And now that income was gone.
0: Yeah, wow.
1: And uh, I got a letter back almost immediately from, Walter North, who was the director of student finance
0: at that time. He said,
1: you're going to a scholarship, went a loan and a job on campus, so I'd have spending money.
0: Wow. So they helped you finish out that final year then? You bet. Yeah. So Knox helped you with an education. They helped you out with your final year on, on the loan there. And then they also, one thing that we were bringing up earlier, helped you meet your future wife isn't that right
1: exactly
0: yeah and that was in your final year or yes final year so tell me about that well we were in a chapter
1: meeting one night and our president Roger Taylor said well that's about th- that's about it for tonight but I have one one more thing yeah said any of you brothers who are not dating somebody oh, seriously my God. I want you to date a ha. <laughs> Roger we, Taylor we, said yeah, that? We need to raise our image on campus. Wow. So I want you brothers who are not, who are just socializing to socialize with PyFIs. Uh, so you met Patty that night then? Yeah. Wow. My, my friend Roger Griffin and I went to the Seymour Lab library and we went up to the second floor. We were sitting on the second floor and I grabbed Roger. And I said, Rog, look down there on the first floor in the corner at that table. There are two blondes down there. <laughs> Those two are Pi-Fi pledges. Yeah. So I'm gonna go ask one and go to the gizmo. After the library closes, why don't you ask the other one? Roger said he would, and he did. I went down and asked Matt, and the other one was also a pi five pledge. He didn't marry her. <laughs> he did ask her to go to the gizmo. Okay. After I went to Iowa and spent a year there. I knew I didn't want to get my degree there. Yeah. I wanted to go to Illinois. So I asked Pat to transfer to Illinois so we could be together. Her parents were not so much on board with that idea, but they said, yes, we can do that. We both went to the University of Illinois, continued to date, and I asked her to marry me. Beautiful.
0: Beautiful. Now here you are on your 60th reunion yeah. back at Knox. How cool. So, wow, what what a an amazing group of things to chat about. I mean, when we look at Knox alumni, I mean, you're like a shining star. My goodness. I mean, N- NASA, autotune, beautiful marriage, great stories. I mean, what an honor to talk to you, Terry.
1: Well, thank you much, Mitch.
0: I'm uh, very happy we were able to get together. I hope you have a great homecoming. I know we're just, for those listening, this will, time in the future, tomorrow is the homecoming weekend, the start of homecoming weekend on Saturday. So lots ahead, lots of things going on. Um, but I hope this is a great week for you and I hope the reunion's great and everything that's going on. It's It's been great chatting with you and I'm really glad that we were able to get together. I am too. Thank you. Thank you. Well, there you have it. Terry is simply one of a kind. His passion for Knox and the amazing things he has done since leaving campus are truly remarkable, and we were honored to have a moment to sit and chat. That's it for this episode of the KnoxCast. If you have any thoughts on this episode, or any episode, or an idea for a great next guest, email us at knoxcast at knox.edu. Special thanks to Andy Crawford and the Knox Jazz Department for providing the music for our intro and outro. Thanks for listening.